Come on, lift it up. amazing grace of our God this morning. Amen. Jesus, we worship you. 
lift our hands in your presence, oh God. Lord, and we say thank you. We honor you, Lord. We honor you, Lord. We honor you, Lord. Jesus, we
Sing it, church. Oh, it's free. I'm a child. Yes, I in my father's house. In my father's house. sets free is what? Come on, he who the sun sets free is what? Amen. Father, I pray right now that we open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand, but more importantly, Lord, may we open our hearts to receive your word. We love you, oh God. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Turn to one next to you and say, I am free indeed. This morning, it's amazing when I remember things. <laughs> so, just want to remind you the annual business meeting tonight at 5.30. We've got an exciting announcement we were going to share tonight, so hope that you can make it. We'll also be voting on two positions on the board. We sent out 13 uh, nomination forms. We got four of those back, four that were willing to let their names stand. I want you to know this morning who they are. If we can put that slide up, please, you'll know uh, who the four that are nominated. Clint Allen is finishing um, a one-year term, filling in the last of Gene Neese's uh, term, and he has uh, been renominated. Nick Coons is uh, nominated. Andrew Morgan has been nominated, and Steve, and St Steve Webb has been nominated. Those are the four names. Steve's currently on the board and finishing his three-year term. So those are the, the four individual names that will be presented to you tonight. And uh, hopefully we'll be praying and seeking the will of the Lord for the direction of our church for the future. Amen? 5.30 night, we're going to have a great time together. We're also blessed this morning to have our own Gage and Kathleen Bender here. They're going to present to us a little bit of their story and their missions um, endeavors, their work um, that God's called them to do. So would you give them a welcome this morning? Thank you so much, Pastor Gary, for allowing us to be here. We are so excited to be here in our home church, um, to be able to say thank you um, for your support of us and to be able to share what God has been doing in the Himalayan mountains where we serve. Um, we primarily work with the Tibetan people um, who are there as exiles from their home country. Um, statistically, there are actually more Tibetans that live in the country where we serve um, than in the former country of Tibet. And so when we talk to our Tibetan friends, the things that we continuously hear from them are, we don't have a home. No one sees us. No one cares about us. Is there anywhere where we can belong, where people will love us for who we are? And we talk with them 
about the man named Jesus who loves them no matter what country they come from or where they find themselves. And we use this idea of the common table, which is this idea that there is a place for everyone at the table. They just don't know that they've been invited yet. And so we are called to invite them because when we bring them to the table over and over in the Bible, we see Jesus sitting down, eating with people. That is such a huge part of Asian culture Um, because when Jesus sat down with people, he revealed himself to them. And that one moment with Jesus changed people's lives forever. We've experienced it. Many of you have experienced that moment with Jesus. And that is the moment that we are trying to create for our Tibetan friends. And so that's a wonderful uh, thing to strive to do, but how do we do that? Um, and our answer was we didn't really know when we got to India. Um, we just kept praying that God would just use us in any way that he can. And once again, God totally showed up like he always does. Um, we were in a tea house, or I was actually, and a monk was sitting there playing uh, Uno by himself. And I didn't think you can play Uno by yourself. So I said, you want to play Uno? And he got so excited, like, yeah, let's play Uno. And I'm like, you can't get that excited to play Uno. I mean, it's a cool game, but not that excited. And, uh, and he's, like, he's like, let's play. So we played probably two hours, just Uno, back and forth. Found out his name is Kitty, and that he loves, loves to cook food. And I said, Kitty, I would love to try your food sometime. And he was like, no, you're a white American. I cook real spicy food. And I was like, Kitty, I will try anything you put in front of me. I learned to regret that later. Um, but he, uh, he's like, I will show up tomorrow at your house, and I will bring my friends. And we're like, okay. So 6 o'clock he showed up. Apparently he brought 29 of his friends. So uh, now we have 30, 30 monks in our house. Um, Kathleen's frantically helping them in the kitchen. I'm playing Uno with the other monks because they love to play Uno. And it was just a wonderful time of just laughter, f- uh, friendship starting, and just sharing life together. Um, and... God completely blew that out of the water because we told them, you, can come, you guys are welcome at our house anytime, day or night. And sometimes at midnight, they would come back and, and want to throw another party at our house. Um, and we just get up out of bed and we uh, talk to them. And our house became known as the, the house where they can let their barriers down because they started asking questions. They started sharing stories about how they escaped from Tibet and how their best friends got shot um, trying to cross over the border. And all these personal stories, they were... We, you know, we laughed together, we cried together. It was just this wonderful opportunity and wonderful time where friendships just started growing out of our house. And so one day, probably three months later, a monk came, comes in and is like, are you guys really true believers in Jesus? Or, or, or do you just say that? And like, no, we actually are true believers. He says, awesome, I have read the Bible, I don't understand it. I wanna learn more about your God and his compassion. Can you show me who this Jesus is? And so we're like, yeah. So um, him and uh, other monks started asking more about Jesus and started wanting to learn more about him um, to the point where we actually were going to start a Bible study. And then COVID happened. But as we know, the gospel doesn't get stopped because of COVID. And so uh, we just have to come back and regroup. And our next steps, um, Kathleen will share about that. And so we're excited as we go back. We are hoping to expand um, our opportunity to interact with these monks through opening a learning center where we can teach them English individually. Many of them are in our town to actually learn English. And then we're also hoping to give voice to the Tibetans in our community who want to share stories, who want to share their culture. And so we are hoping to offer classes where the Tibetans in our area would be able to 
come and share about teaching, about uh, culture, about dance, whatever the community might be interested in. And so that is our goal as we head back this term. That's our big dream. And we just want to say thank you because you are such a huge part of that dream coming true. Your giving financially, your prayers continuously are the reason that we have monks who are asking us to come uh, and explain to them about Jesus. And so we just want to say thank you to Berean and to Pastor Gary and Carol and all of our Berean family. Thank you so much. COVID time to wave. God blessings, God bless. I know that uh, many of you support them regularly on a monthly basis. We have an account set up for them and you can give to help them. We'd encourage you to do that today. You can make out a check or give cash, put it in an offering envelope designated for Bender and put it in the offering box. You can do it through our website and you can also text to 84321 and dollar sign the amount and the name Bender. Any of those ways will allow you to give to them and support their ministry. So we want to encourage you to do that so we can be a blessing to them. Amen? Let's be a part of that. I want you to enjoy this video as we get ready to receive from Hebrews chapter 5. Something, someone has our attention. We are followers. We are all following something. Sports teams, political candidates, natural disasters, breaking news, financial markets, technology trends, famous people. The list never ends. What is your curious obsession? Who or what are you following? Is Jesus on your list? Does he turn in and out of your thoughts? Is he a consideration of who you are and what you do? He should let your heart catch fire with what it means to be a Jesus follower. Your love never If you're a follower of Jesus, let me hear your hands. Follower of Jesus. This morning we're in Hebrews chapter 5. And Dylan is going to come and quote for us this morning. If you'll open your Bible or turn your digital device to Hebrews chapter 5 and follow along as he quotes for us. Hebrews chapter 5. Make sure I get it all the way on. There we go. Got it. Okay. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand um, in fact, sorry. in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths about God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, um, uh, who's still being an infant, uh, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Dylan. Give Dylan a hand this morning. And if you think it's easy to do that, you're next. 
Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews is about better things. Chapter 1, better than the angels and the prophets. Chapter 2, we're called to pay attention. Chapter 3, don't let your heart get hard. And last week we talked about entering the promised land, which isn't heaven, it's that place of overcoming Christian experience, the place where God wants us to live. So when we come to chapter 5, it's an entirely different kind of thrust, talking to us about our ministry calling. Every one of us has a ministry calling from God. We're called to the office of the priesthood. Now, we don't believe in a priesthood as a mediator between God and man, but Hebrews chapter 5 talks to us about the calling that we have as priests of God in this world. And so the chapter goes like this, just to get a sense of where we're headed. The first part of the chapter provides for us the biblical basis for the priesthood. We'll look at the biblical base. And then it shows us how Jesus was our great high priest. So once you see it explained and then you see it modeled, the end of the chapter is a call for us to walk in that priesthood calling as scripture defines it and as Jesus modeled it. And it's not as though we have a choice, it's part of the calling. It's part of who we should be and what we should do. It's the importance of a God-ordained priesthood. Our better Savior has entrusted the ministry of the priesthood into our hands. And experiencing better things in your life and the lives of people around you as a direct line to our fulfillment of our calling. People who are not fulfilling their calling, fulfilling their purpose, will never experience the joy and the abundance that God has for our lives. So let's look first at the first four verses, the biblical concept of the priesthood in chapter 5. We're told that every high priest is selected from among men. That's the foundation of the teaching. The priesthood isn't angelic. The priesthood is not supernatural, but that God ordained a priesthood that would be conducted by mankind. Now that becomes a phenomenal idea to get a hold of, that the role of the priest would be done by those who are in need of a priest. And we'll see that developed a little bit further. It's a human endeavor. What does the priest do? The priest stands in the gap between God and man. We're appointed by God for that service. Man is fallen. We have a relationship with God that we're called to, and that gap is filled by believers who live and conduct themselves in that priestly role. So this morning, I don't want this to fly over your head. I want you to see it, that God has ordained that you stand in the gap between a righteous God and a world that's going to hell. It's not like you can choose to do that. That's your calling as a believer. You're standing in that place in the human priesthood to represent God to men and offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's your role of the priesthood. Now, I want you to watch this. We're going to unpack this a little bit. The idea being that Jesus sacrificed once and for all, but it was the priesthood who offered the sacrifices. So think about what we're doing. This world will never 
never know about Jesus and what he's done and we'll never receive his sacrifice if we don't stand in that gap and offer them the sacrifice. There's a place at the table, even if they don't know it yet, our job is to tell them, our job is to bring them the story, our job is to fill that gap. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We are, we are the aroma. We are the fragrance. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And then Paul says, and who is equal to such a task? I, I want you to feel the weightiness of the priesthood this morning. What, what he's telling us is we're in that middle ground. And we are either the fragrance of life to those that are responding, the fragrance of death. Do you know what that really means? Our life and ministry here is either releasing people and empowering them to come to Christ or when they reject the message, they're being condemned in their sins. It's a matter of life and death. It's not a church matter. It's not just an idea that, wow, this is an important thing we're a part of. This is life and death. It is the saving or the perishing of the world that we live in. In John chapter 20, there's a powerful verse there that scholars have argued over and debated over for years. And often we say that Acts chapter 2 was the birth of the church. And I, I don't believe that. I'm going to show you why. And it's important in regard to the priesthood. Acts chapter 2 is the empowering of the church. Why would you say that? Because something happened in John chapter 20 that cannot be ignored. And there was a group called the church that gathered in the upper room. And they were gathered there to receive power to minister. It was the empowering of the church. But I believe the church was born in John chapter 20. When Jesus met with his disciples and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't prophesy that they would. And he wasn't talking about the empowering of the Spirit. Because there are two works the Holy Spirit does in our lives. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit is alive inside every born again believer. But once you've received that living Spirit inside of you, there's an empowering called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. They were born again in John chapter 20. They were empowered for service in Acts chapter 2. And when they were born again in John 20, listen, listen to what happens or goes with that calling. To whom you forgive... Any to whom you forgive will be made free from their sins. Let that settle down into your spirit. He's, <laughs> Jesus isn't saying that about himself. He's saying that to his church. Any to whom you give forgiveness will be made free from their sins. And any from whom you keep back forgiveness will still be in their sins. The King James says that whoever sins you remit, they're remitted, and whoever sins you retain, they're retained. And I'm, I, it's a whole other uh, place to go in, a, in another teaching, but let me just put it to you simply. 
We hold the power of heaven and hell in our hands as believers. And if I give them the gospel and they receive, what am I giving them? I'm giving them the sacrifice of forgiveness. And the Bible says when I give that to them and they receive it, they will be forgiven. It's the role of the priesthood. And whoever I hold it back from or whoever doesn't receive it, they will be condemned. It's the role of the priesthood. We fill a very important place in relationship to men and women coming to faith in Christ. Now, verse 2, and this is really, really important to get a hold of. Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. The who? The high priest. Jesus fulfills it in completion. But the role being explained is that he is subject to weakness. Why is that important? Because he's able to empathize. He's able to be gentle with those who fail, and we are all subject to failure. One of the things that happens in the life of believers, the longer we serve him, and walk in relationship to him. If we are not careful, we can become increasingly judgmental toward those who struggle. I know that nicotine addiction is a real thing and it's a strong addiction. And I can sympathize, but I can't empathize. In fact, I could say to someone struggling with nicotine, just say, just quit. Why would I say that? Because I don't have a clue. The longer we live for Christ, the more that attitude can, can sneak into our lives that we look down at people who are struggling and want them to just straighten up. You need to remember as a priest that you are flesh too, that you have failed too, that you have made mistakes, that you needed forgiveness too. That's what makes the priesthood so powerful. We who have failed, we who are flesh, we who struggle are not saying to the world, come up where I am am where there's no struggle we're saying we're coming to where you are we've struggled like you struggled we failed like you failed and we have an answer to help you it's remembering where you've come from God ordained that the priesthood would be made up of people who also have struggled since he himself is subject to to weakness. Now look at verse 3. This is why he has to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. As a priesthood, you have to remember that you have to, uh, you are in need of sacrifice as well. <laughs> Not one of us in this place, however holy you are, however high you walk, however clean you are, not one of us deserves to go to heaven. Not one of us can make it in our own strength. Let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
on that day, once a year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and we'd offer the blood of that perfect sacrifice on the, on the, um, on the, uh, the mercy seat, on the Ark, of, the Ark of the Covenant, would go in there once a year. He also understood not only was he offering that blood for, his own, for the world's sins, the nation's sins, he was offering it for his own sins as well. He wasn't the sacrifice. He was the priest of the sacrifice. And he was in need of sacrifice as well. The power of the priesthood, the only way that we're going to reach this world with a message of the gospel is when we present ourselves as likewise fallen individuals who have simply discovered where the answer is that gives us a better way to live. For years, I've heard it debated. Are we, uh, there's an old Southern Gospel song. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I listen to people argue that. I'm not a sinner. I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. I know who I am. I'm a child of God. You should never say you're a sinner. You're a saint. <laughs> um, it kind of works like this. I had a friend who was in ministry, and their denominational distinctive was there was a place that they called total sanctification, that you could grow to a place in God that, that, that you were so sanctified that it was impossible for you to sin again. You live above that, complete eradication of the sin nature. And he taught that and preached that. Well, day came that he had to move. They were moving to another house. And I went over to help him on moving day. And after a while, I said to him, it doesn't appear that your sin nature has been completely eradicated. <laughs> Hello? I've never met that person. I've never met that person. We're all subject to, so, to fail. So you can argue all you want. What is my identity? I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm not the righteousness of God. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. In Christ is the important part here. And when we start to think too highly of ourselves, we're going to lose any relevance with the world that we live in. So what am I? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Because you take grace away, what am I? I'm a sinner again. Now you can argue that with me if you want, and you can tell me how high and lofty you are. But let me just hang around your house for a while. Let me ride in your car for a while. Let me follow you at work. And there's going to be a chink in your armor that will remind you and will remind me that as a priest, I have to remember that I'm in need of the same sacrifice that I offer. So when I offer someone Jesus, I'm doing it knowing that I need it as much as they do. You're coming to the same table. I, uh, we lived in an Amish community, not in the Amish community, but near an Amish community for a while. And uh, it was always interesting to me that 
the Amish separate themselves from worldly goods. And I get that and I respect them and I respect their way of life. I'm not mocking them at all. But while they'll re reject my car, they don't reject taking a ride in it. <laughs> and they won't have an ice cream freezer, but they will go to Dairy Queen. Hello? So there's some tension there. But one of the things that I found really interesting is they will invite you to have a meal with them. Now, I, I, I've never, I, Carol and I had never done that, but I talked to people who had. And this particular group of Amish, I don't know if this is true of all of them, but they have two tables. A table where the Amish sit, and then another table where the outsiders sit. And the food isn't shared. You have your food and their food, and it doesn't mix. In Christian circles, that's called Pharise being a Pharisee. We're not higher than the people we serve. We're not better. We're not more separate. We're not more pure apart from Jesus Christ. I want you to grab hold of, we will become more impactful as a priest when we constantly remind ourselves that I'm in need of the same sacrifice that I'm offering to a world that's in need. If we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ in continuing tense cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We need that ongoing relationship, so it's establishing, God established that the priesthood be a priesthood of human beings who offer sacrifice, who recognize that there is in much need of the sacrifice as anyone else is. Paul said it this way. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Argue with him. Or the King James of whom I am chief. This priesthood, verse 4, is a calling from God. Now, in the Old Testament, not everyone received this calling. The tribe of Levi was called. But the point is, you don't take this calling on yourself. You don't try to operate in your own power and shape it your way. It's a calling that you're called into, not a calling that you take hold of. You're called into that relationship with him, called by God. So the point that I want you to grab hold of this morning is when people don't know their calling, you're called to the priesthood. You're called to the priesthood. And you have a responsibility there. Well, then in verses 5 to 10, we look at it in the life of Jesus Christ. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you're my son, today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He was called by God. Now remember, we're not talking about the Trinity, and, and this gets confusing for us Trinitarians who are often more tritheist than we are Trinitarians. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God and the distinction of three persons, and that distinction is emphasized here that when God the Son came to earth, he didn't say, I will go to earth if you make me a high priest. He came to serve and to suffer and live among us. And God the Father ordained that he would rise to that service for God's people. His priesthood is a 
permanent priesthood, an eternal priesthood. He is like Melchizedek that will show up later, and I don't have time to explain this morning, but Melchizedek is a priest that Abraham paid tithes to, and Melchizedek had neither beginning nor ending of days, and we'll see that expanded. But why is that important here? Because Jesus could not legally be a priest by Old Testament law because he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's a son of David. He's from the tribe of, of uh, Judah, and you unpack all of that. He couldn't be a priest, except he's a priest not after the temporal order, but after the order of Melchizedek. So look at verse 7. Here's where we understand how he entered into that priesthood. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Did you hear what I just read? We have this picture of Jesus, the Son of God, just trampling over the devil. And we make that battle in the wilderness as though he just stomped on the devil's head and went on his way. It tells me that when he was here on earth, he operated as a man and battled the devil the same that you and I do. He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He knows what that feels like. He's walked that same road, that same battle. And when you pray those prayers, remember, he's prayed them first. He prayed them as well. He learned obedience from what he suffered. <laughs> you know what that tells me? It isn't the will of God to eliminate all suffering from your life. <laughs> now, it is the will of me to eliminate all suffering Watch, if you're going to be a priest and empathize, there are things in you that have to be worked out so that you can fulfill his calling. And where is that going to happen? It's going to happen in times of pain. It's going to happen in times of pain. So maybe our approach shouldn't be, God, deliver me from this pain. Maybe it should be, God, what are you doing in my life in the midst of this pain that will make me more like you? Yes. Learning the fellowship of his suffering. And, and here's the problem. You can preach prosperity. Everybody be healthy, happy, wise, and nothing ever bad, nothing ever go wrong, never any pain, as long as you don't stay in the text. When you cherry pick the scriptures, you can make it say whatever you want. But when you walk through the text... It makes you look at things that we may not want to look at. How many are hearing me this morning? He learned obedience through what he suffered. <laughs> I hate suffering. In fact, I don't know that I would say I've suffered. I'd say I've had pain and frustration and sorrow and grief. But it's reminding us, reaching this world. How many of you are glad that somebody or somewhere or somehow you are in a place where a priest on earth, the priesthood of believers, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and you heard the story. Somebody was willing to step into that place. And there are some bodies that are waiting for us to step in that place and you're equipping for that. <laughs> oh, I hate this. 
is going to come through some painful times. Probably not going to write a book about that and go on the preaching tour. It's not a ministry you aspire to. It's one you're called to. He learned it by reverent submission. He feels what we feel. Then verses 9 and 10, and once made perfect. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. What was happening from the time he's 12 to the time that he's 30? What's happening when we, between the time we see him in the temple and we see him in the wilderness? What's happening in his life? He's growing in favor and stature with God and man. And God is shaping the human side of Jesus. And when that process is complete and he succeeded, he won and he's victorious, then he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So watch this. Not, not sure I'm communicating it the clearest fashion. Jesus didn't come and immediately fulfill the role of Savior. When he was born in Bethlehem, he came prophesied that he would become the Savior of the world. There was a human side to Jesus that had to grow up, that had to mature, that had to develop. And the Bible says that when he was made perfect or when he was fully prepared, then you see him being baptized in the river by John the Baptist. And you hear the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved son, hear him he didn't say that a week before he didn't say that a month before he didn't even say that when he was in the temple wouldn't that have been a cool story Jesus is in the temple and he's astounding the teachers of the law and his parents come to see where he is and they say what what are you doing and Jesus says don't you know I have to be about my father's business wouldn't that have been a great time for it to be thunder in the sky to open and God to say this is my beloved son I mean he declared he was doing his father's business but heavens are silent because the process isn't finished how many have ever been there where the heaven is silent because the process isn't finished but the day came that he was willing to step into that calling and God spoke from heaven this is my beloved son and he became the source of eternal salvation all right so all of that to get us to verse 11 which talks about it's titled in my bible the warnings against falling away but i i want you to see it in a different light i really believe this section introduces us to a concept theologically defined as the universal priesthood of believers how many are still with me i know there's a little more teaching but how many are still with me do i have three do i have four do i have five do i have, do I have a six or seven <laughs> what is the universal priesthood of believers it's a doctrine that all humans have access to God through Christ, the true high priest, and do not need a priestly mediator. Now, let me tell you why that matters. How many of you have heard of the Reformation? Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door of the church and for that was excommunicated 
from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, again, this little history and a little church history and world history rolled into one. But the world had been in a period of what we call the Dark Ages. And I'm convinced that you can trace, it parallels exactly, when, when the church became encumbered with government and they became one and the church removed the priesthood from believers and pushed them away, not allowing them access to the word of God and telling them that they were saved by the sacrifices and the lamp of God grew dim in our world. Our world then entered into a time called the dark ages because when you darken the light of God in the world, everything else darkens too. But what happens with the onset of the Reformation when men like Zwingli and John Calvin and Martin Luther had this revelation from God about living by faith, when the church was reborn and the fire of evangelism began to burn again, what happened was you have the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and you have things happening in the world that are fresh and new again because when the light of the gospel shines bright, everything in culture shines brighter. There are three principles of Martin Luther's Reformation. The first was sola scriptura. Sola scriptura meant um, that we put our authority in the word of God. It's scripture and scripture alone. That wasn't the case before. It was believed and taught that scripture was understood by the traditions of the church. And apart from the traditions of the church, scripture could not be understood. And Martin Luther stood up and proclaimed, Sola Scriptura, it's the word of God. And the word of God alone is yet a revelation of the power of the word. It was revolutionary in that day then secondly he taught sola fide which means justification by faith alone the just shall live by faith and when he saw that when he saw that from Paul's teachings that we don't have to do the we don't have to do the sacraments to be saved and all the rules of the church to be saved and our salvation isn't through obedience to the laws of the ecclesiastical um, overseers it's in relationship with God the just shall live by faith it's scripture alone and faith alone caused him to die as a martyr and birthed the evangelical church that we so enjoy today. But there was a third component that was just as dangerous and just as earth-shaking, and that's what was referred the universal priesthood of believers. Martin Luther believed that the word priest should become as common as the word Christian because all Christians are priests. The priesthood of all believers has been the most neglected central teaching of the Reformation. It's one thing to say you're a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and an ambassador for Christ, but it's another thing altogether to have our identity shaped by these truths so that we act like it. If we cover the notion of the priesthood of believers, we will pray more boldly, offer up spiritual sacrifices regularly, and realize our unique privilege in Christ because we're not just a follower. We're part of a divinely called priesthood. We are the priesthood of Hebrews chapter 5. Let me read some scriptures that would come alongside that. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, you also as living stones are built up into a spiritual house to be a what? A holy 
priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we worship and lift our hands and bring what? The sacrifice of praise. We are offering um, spiritual sacrifice as priests. Chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, he's made us kings and priests unto God. Chapter 5, verse 10, he's made us unto God, kings and priests. And at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 6, blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It's important in the ecclesiology, in the, in the understanding of the church. It's important in eschatology, what's happening in the end times. The priesthood is something that God wants us to not lose sight of, nor forget our calling. You're here to represent God to this world. We are a priesthood of believers. Now, all that was my introduction. Because verses 11 to 13 warn us of what will nullify your priestly ministry. All right? And then that also shows us what will help us. What will disqualify you as a priest? Number one, close-mindedness. We have much more to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. If, there's, if there is anything that gets under my skin, it's people who are intentionally stupid. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, they're stupid on purpose. They're not even trying. If you ever talk to somebody, they're not even trying to understand. Not even trying. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, I have so much more to tell you about. But you've quit trying to learn. You've quit trying to grow. You think you've got enough. You think you have all of the answers. When you don't want to learn, when you have a know-it-all mentality and stop learning, it makes you accountable because your heart will become hard. You become closed-minded. Dull of hearing, the King James says. My brother-in-law, my wife's brother's name is David. And there's... Uh, uh, 12 years between you and David, so he is younger, and I kind of was like an, uh, probably an older brother in those younger years, and he, he would so get under my skin because it didn't matter what you said to him. Anything you said to him when you're done, he said, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. I mean, he could do something and and do it the wrong way. And you'd say, see, I told you that if you did that, it wouldn't work. He'd say, yep, I knew that. We, we call those people church members. <laughs> I knew that. Dull of hearing. You, you, you can't teach anybody who already knows everything. It disqualifies you as a priest. Second, it says in relationship to that, verse 12, you ought to be teachers by now. 
You ought to be teaching somebody by now. What are you doing with what you know? There ought to be somebody you're pouring into. Uh, Two weeks ago, Wednesday night, I shared about this model of spiritual development of someone pouring into you, laboring with you, and you pouring into others. Every healthy believer will have somebody in their life, and I'm going to say that again, every healthy believer will have somebody in their life that they're downloading to, that they're teaching, that they're equipping that they're helping. You say, there's no one in that in my life. Find them because you need that outflow. You ought to be a teacher by now. The faith of these people is shallow and flippant. They haven't even mastered the basics of faith. I'm just going to tell you that when I'm talking to someone about Jesus, they just, I just want to introduce them to Jesus. I want you to meet him and know him. If you repent of your sins, he'll forgive you. Believe in your heart that he's raised him from the dead. But if that's all you know and you've been living for Jesus any length of time, you're shallow. Our faith needs to be more than a mile wide and an inch deep. It needs to, it needs to go down into some of the deeper truths that you dig out of, that you, that you find out for yourself. You ought to know some of those things by now is what he's saying or she is saying author is saying to the church in Hebrews. And then verse 13, spiritually immature. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. By the baby things of Scripture. (laughs) I, 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 I remember hearing an old preacher years ago preach from this text. Pastor Tim, he said, I don't I don't mind putting the nipple of a bottle in a baby's mouth, but when you got to part the beard to get it in, <laughs> they need to grow up a little bit. Hello? Need to grow up a little bit. If you're still on the milk, <laughs> I feel like I need a chair or a shield or something, but here's how, it, here's how I hear it. Well, that offends me. That was too hard. No, no. I think when you're 40, you ought to be able to handle a little more than just cream of wheat. Come on. We live in a culture, and forgive me, and COVID is changing. This is one of the things that I hope COVID will change in the church world, that the church for too long has catered to the appetites of the people who come rather than catering to the God who has called us and communicating the truths of the word of God regardless of how it's received. Now, if people react to the way I deliver it, that's on me. But if they react to the message, that's on them. And there are believers who need to grow up a little bit and be able to endure a little bit and know that some things are wrong and some things are right. Because depth is being able to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. Well, just be happy, Pastor. Everybody is good. I don't like the condemning tone you have today. You baby, grow up a little bit. I'm smiling when I say that. Does that make it okay if I smile when I say that? Make it okay. How many understand what I'm saying? There's a play. If you're going to be a priest, come on, you're a priest. It's time to grow up in the things that matter. So what qualifies you as a priest? 
there are three things that you need to aspire to, to be ready to enter into your calling. Number one is active learning. You need to engage on your own in the study of the scriptures. One of the things that we really need to do here, our next step forward is figure out a way to do small groups, to launch small groups. But whether we do or not, I can't on Sunday morning feed you as believers everything you need to eat. How many of you are going to eat today, sometime today? And how many of you are not eating again until next Sunday? Um, yeah, not very many unless you're intentionally fasting. You're going to have to cook for yourself. You're going to have to figure out something on your own. Active learning. Number two is teaching others. You need to find a relationship where you're pouring into somebody's life. How does that happen? It happens in relationship, in relationship building. It might be someone at work. It might be as simple as someone in the convenience store. It might be somewhere else, someone that you get to know that you're pouring into. The priesthood is made up of people who are active learners, who are teaching others, and who are spiritually mature. And maturity is the ability to discern between good and evil. I'm just, I'm going to say it. We're in, this is the last Sunday of January. But an active learning, teaching others, spiritually mature believer would never find themselves in a place that they minimize the sin of abortion. When you understand the issues involved, I'm going to meddle a little bit here, and you might get mad at me, but when you do the work of Scripture and understand what witchcraft is in Scripture, discerning between right and wrong, a deep believer would never, would never advocate for the legalization of recreational marijuana. Not when you understand spiritually what that does to someone. It opens the door to demonic. I can show it to you from scripture. What I'm trying to say to you is some of the things that the culture is driving us to is because Christians are so shallow in America that we have no discerning of right and wrong. And maturity isn't your ministry in the miraculous. It's your ability to discern between good and evil. And I'm telling you, we're going to need more of that in the days that are ahead. We're going to need more of that. So church, I'm calling you this morning to the priesthood. To rise up into the priesthood. To stand up in your calling. The Bible shows us what the priesthood is. Jesus modeled what it is. And the end of chapter 5 calls you to it. Make a commitment this morning that you're going to be an active learner of the word of God, that you're going to find someone that you can minister to that will hear what you have to say about the word of God and that God will sharpen your skills in discerning between right and wrong. I'm astounded sometimes at what I hear Christians defending. The depth of maturity is in that area. We are the fragrance of life and the fragrance of death. We offer this world the opportunity to receive the ultimate sacrifice to communicate the blessings of a better Savior. And that won't happen until we arise in our calling as priests of the Most High God. Let's stand together. And let's just take a moment, priests. Priesthood, 
let's do what we're called to do. Let's offer up sacrifice right now of praise and of worship. Let's offer up those sacrifices that honor his name. Let's worship him. Jesus, help us, help us see the high holy calling that we have as children of God to fulfill the institution of the priesthood.
let that weigh heavily on us in a way that motivates us to rise up into that calling. This world is dependent upon it, and we want to be faithful to you in it. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be.